The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Hey everybody, this is John Zink, welcoming you to another episode of the True Ambition Podcast. Uh, my esteemed guest today is uh, my good friend, Mr. Darren Search, and uh, welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. G'day, John. Born in Australia, uh, lives in Charleston, North Carolina. South Carolina. Oh, geez, <laughs> Come on, you're the American here, fella. I'm an idiot. <laughs> Lives in Charleston. How's that? There we go. Um, he's the COO of Interskill Learning, married to a beautiful wife named Carrie. Three kids, Kennedy, Raleigh, and Cammie. Two dogs and one cat. Update to that. Uh-oh. <laughs> one dog died and we got another cat, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's flipped. <laughs> one comes one dog, out, one goes in. There we go. Darren is one of the only 32 people awarded the IBM lifetime champion status by IBM and only the second person to be awarded the IBM lifetime champion status for the IBM Z mainframe sphere. He is a respected thought leader and industry expert on mainframe workforce training and is a noted speaker at countless computing conferences and events across the globe. And, uh, I'm so happy that you, uh, Join me here today in the True Ambition podcast. Thanks, mate. That sounds sounds uh, not too bad when you say it. <laughs> well, I've we've, been, we've, got, uh, uh, we've got some history to go through here when we start <clears throat> yeah. off. So Darren and, I, Darren and I have known each other for a long time, but my wife has known Darren and uh, his wife, Carrie, for even longer than that. So uh, there, there's a history that goes back there, what, 30 years how many years has it been that uh, you've known Carissa? Yeah, maybe maybe twenty five years. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Time flies. Yeah. So when uh, when I got together with uh, Carissa, she's like, "You've got to meet my friends Darren and Carrie," and then went through the history there that like uh, Carissa's boyfriend at the time, years and years ago, was like your boss, and then you guys came in like knights in shining armor and save my wife, <laughs> you know? So uh, all of a sudden I, I meet uh, Darren and Carrie and uh, you know, she was right. Just great people. And uh, we ended up going on a, a trip to Cancun. This is correct. Yeah. Like 12 years trip. ago. How long was it? That's a long time ago. Again, no, the, the, the past blurs, but yeah, at least, at least a decade plus. Yeah. But what I do remember about it is that uh, Kennedy and I played volleyball on the beach pretty much all day, every day. And uh, you know, as you know, and everybody else knows I, I'm, I'm sober now almost eight years, but back then I was not. And uh, it the place that we stayed at must've watered down the, tequila because i could never get drunk <laughs> that was uh that was a good trip i remember the uh the um, entertainment team for the resort was up on stage singing a variety of songs to keep people entertained in the evening and uh and uh, young mr zinc jumped up on stage and belted out a few 80s tunes so uh so you were well received the crowd were going mad it was fun and then i had uh i had uh, raleigh and cammy burying me in sand on the beach too we have photos yes yeah, that was a great time. So um, let's jump into even farther back, your past. So I already talked about it. You grew up in Australia. Yes, sir. Tell me about your childhood. It was pretty, pretty idyllic, really. We, we uh, My brother and I, one brother, 15 months different, so we were inseparable. Um, and mum and dad had a uh, goat farm, angora goats, which we would shear for the mohair. So, you know, mohair suits, mohair sweaters and so forth. So we had goats. This is in the bush in the mountains, about four hours north of Melbourne. Uh, closest town to our farm was population 11. That's <laughs> a little place called Gapstead, G-A-P-S-T-E-D. And um, so we were way out there in the bush. Uh, we used to get the bus uh, about half hour drive by bus to school each day 
Um, but as kids, we grew up, you know, running around with uh, either gumboots on in the winter or, uh, or bare feet in the summer and working on the farm and playing cricket and playing all sorts of other sports and, you know, running down to the river and swimming all day and that sort of stuff. So it was really wild and carefree sort of uh, young life to grow up. So uh, uh, wonderful, really. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, sorry about going on, but a lot of that sort of carries through to who I am today. You talked to me uh, before about, uh, you know, when Carissa was in a tough spot, you know, and my wife's the same. This is, this is why, you know, it's, it's true love. We help people out. You know, we're, we're just helpful. This is the way it's done in the bush. Anyone needs help, everyone chips in and helps out. So uh, it's, it's definitely uh, influenced who I've turned out 50 years later. Well, I got, uh, I was just thinking that, that Mount Carroll, Illinois, where I grew up in the middle of uh, Northwest Illinois, you know, is a metropolis compared to, you know, where you grew up, a town of 11 <laughs> people, you know, but it's, it, it reminds me because I, I feel so much, I see, I feel such a kinship to that place I grew up in Northwest Illinois, because it's, the, it's very much the same thing. Uh, whenever someone's in need in that small area, everybody else gathers around them and make sure that, that they're taken care of. And uh, I've read your book and yeah, that sounds similar. I mean, we, we'd go into school in a little town called Myrtleford, which is half hour away, uh, about 2000 people. And, and I could definitely feel uh, uh, Myrtleford in, uh, in Mount Carroll when I read your book, same sort of people. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's interesting because uh, in the, in the rat race world of, uh, you know, it staffing or, um, you know, Silicon Valley and all that kind of stuff. It's a, uh, there's still a little bit of that that goes on, you know, when everybody slows down enough to actually take a look around that uh, they realize the community, their community is really the only thing that matters. When you take a chance, take, take a step back and look at that, that there's a lot of that in everything that we do to help out everybody else. But in those small towns, in those communities, I mean, that's, that's really what is ingrained in me and it, it really took away from what you said that that the, the success that uh, I have in my life really goes back to what I learned in those you know small communities it's it's about helping other people and I, I also think that uh, you know these days people can spot authenticity you know what I mean there's there's a lot of people social media and and just in in life today that are you know, not quite what they seem. They, they put on somebody, some other sort of personality or, or pretend to be something they're not. And you can tell. And when you meet someone that's authentic, and again, that's, uh, you know, probably from that, that sort of upbringing, um, people will warm to you straight away. They can, they can feel that about you, that you're, you're authentic and, and they crave that sort of thing. It's nice to be with someone that's authentic and you don't have to pretend to be somebody else or be on your guard. So uh, um, it's definitely... Uh, a good way to live, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, one, one yeah. of those ambitions. <laughs> no, no bullshit. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. So I heard you uh, in <clears throat> past conversations we've had talking about your parents and your grandparents. Um, were your grandparents really close to where you grew up as well? My uh, my mum's side of the family, yeah, they were. Um, about an hour away, another small Victoria. Victoria is the state um, where we lived, uh, another small Victorian country town. And, and they were, you know, uh, my papa was uh, a deacon of the church and uh, owned the hardware store in town and sold, you know, tractors and, and farm equipment and fertilizers and seeds and all that sort of stuff. So they were really hub of the community um, in this little town um, of probably about the same, about two, 3,000 people. Um, and we would visit them a lot <clears throat> and all the extended family. My mum had um, two brothers, three sisters, so um, two brothers, two sisters. So uh, all that big extended family would get together. My dad's side of the family, um, my grandfather had brought my dad out to Australia after World War II. There was a lot of uh, immigration. The Australian government offered um, free boat ride or 10 quid, 10 pounds, they call them the 10 pound poms. They, they would pay 10 pound and, uh, and could come out to Australia and emigrate after World War II because Australia needed the, the people. And so dad came out after living through, you know, the, the bombing and everything in England um, in uh, 
World War II, came out to Australia as a nine-year-old and settled. And his side of the family sort of spread a bit further away. We, we, were, we kept in touch with them, but not as close as my mum's side. But lots of information there for you. Were they in another part of Australia or where did they go to? Yeah, so my, my, my grandfather passed uh, while I was pretty young. Um, although I was, I was very, very close to my grandmother. She was in Melbourne and uh, just a remarkable, remarkable woman. She was a, um, one of the states, if not the country's leading, um, one of the leading mathematicians. Uh, she'd gone through university doing mathematics, um, you know, early, um, the early part of the 1900, 19th century, what's that, 20th century. And um, and had gone to university to do math when women just didn't do that. You know, it was I was going to say it had to be she almost was, unheard she of was for women to rebel, do that but she then. was determined. So she wrote uh, the high school finishing math exam for a number of years, or was on the panel doing that, and uh, was just a teacher. And and everyone loved Eileen Search, my grandmother. Um, as I said, my grandfather had passed. Um, my dad's brothers and sisters were sort of scattered around Australia, yeah, over Adelaide. Um, and uh, up in Sydney and so forth. So we, we kept in touch some, but but not as close as the the nearby uh, mum's side of the family. That's awesome. So one of the things I read about in your history was in your early adulthood, you were a hydrographer. How the hell do you get into water? <laughs> it's a fantastic job. I had... Um, I'd finished my high school and had a place at university down in Melbourne, which is the, the usual track for a country kid was you finished high school and you either started an apprenticeship, you know, became an electrician or a plumber or a carpenter or a builder or something like that. Or you went down to Melbourne, uh, the capital city of the state, uh, which is about uh, three and a half hours away. Uh, and went to university. And I had a spot at uh, university and was going to be uh, some sort of an industrial chemist or something like that. And as fate would have it, there was a um, Australian government had a hydrographic office in Myrtleford, this nearby small town. And hydrographers, Australia is a, a very, very dry continent. So um, we have to look after the water there um, and know all about you know rivers, lakes, underground water and so forth, artesian water. And uh, so the government has quite a large operation uh, monitoring and, and uh, looking after that. Um, and this uh, hydrographic um, office in, in Myrtleford were looking for a trainee hydrographer. And they went to the school and asked a number of the teachers to the high school, is there anyone that would recommend? And they actually recommended me. And when they offered me the job, I figured, okay, I could go down to Melbourne and have to you know, work part-time to afford <laughs> university in Melbourne and rack up a debt or I could uh, become a hydrographer. And in those days, the, the um, qualifications were by correspondence. And you know, before the internet, this was receiving packages of work in the mail, printed out and completing them all, doing the drafting and the, and the physics and everything else that's involved and mailing them back to the university that, uh, that did it. So it was, it was amazing uh, um, way to get a degree, but uh, that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. That was my career. Absolutely loved it. We, we would be, uh, whenever there's floods, we'd be running around like, you know, cat on a hot tin roof is the saying, I think. But, you know, we'd be running around like crazy trying to measure the flows of these rivers in massive stages of flood. So it was pretty exciting and dangerous work, um, measuring rivers at all sorts of low stages so that they know how much water comes through at certain heights. And again, they get to know the water resources. Uh, there was, you know, four-wheel driving up into the mountains to measure tiny little streams where people never went. You know, there's the wild animals everywhere and little platypuses would pop their heads up out of the water and look at you. You know, they're incredibly rare uh, animals in Australia and stuff. So, so it was a, just a phenomenal job. Um, but I had gone down to the head office in Melbourne um, transferred down there, been, been transferred down there and was living in Melbourne, the big city for a country boy, which was a bit of an eye opener anyway. And I think I've told you about this for some reason, I'd never been on an airplane before. I'd never really thought of traveling before. Um, my HR department was after me because I'd gone a couple of years and not had a vacation because I enjoyed how, the job how, so how much. Old, how old were you? 21, maybe 22, okay. 22, something like that. And, uh, um, they were after me to take some vacation and I was on lunch hour in Melbourne and back when you had uh, travel agents, um, 
right next to this restaurant where I'd got some food, there was a travel agent there. And for some reason I walked in there and the lady there was really nice. And we got talking and she asked me where I was from and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, by the time I walked out of there 15 minutes later, I don't know why I bought myself a ticket to London to go, to go to England to see where my dad had been born. I don't know what the heck happened, but um, I how, paid for how, it. How long were you planning on going when you bought this ticket? I hadn't planned at all. I, I'd just gone down to, uh, to the main street for lunch and, uh, and somehow she convinced me or, or something convinced me to, to do this. So I went back to work and told them, okay, I need a month off um, on, on this month, which not such a big deal on Australia. Everyone gets four weeks vacation from day one. Uh, and a few months later, I'm in England looking around, <laughs> looking around with no plans going, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> um, and I do ramble on, but um, just as part of, you know, wandering around and adventuring and stuff like that, I really sort of woke up and, and travel got into my bones and I got horribly, horribly drunk one night in a pub with three mad New Zealanders who had just bought a Volkswagen bus, a combi van. Uh, to head around Europe for four or five months. And they convinced me to uh, resign from my job and join them and travel around Europe. So again, before the internet, I faxed a resignation letter back to Hydrographic in Australia the next day saying I'd be uh, resigning and jumped in the combi van with these lads and off we went to Europe for I'm joining the circus. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> this is it. What was I thinking? But uh, but yeah, I mean, I was a couple of years traveling around the world, you know, working in pubs in London, traveling around Europe, ran with the bulls at Pamplona one year, went to a couple of Oktoberfests in Munich, did all sorts of traveling, crossed through the Middle East and, and to India, um, and then eventually found my way back to Australia. But Another alcohol-related incident, and I, <laughs> I don't drink too much, but uh, at the second Oktoberfest, so this is 89, um, I was at a table with all these crazy characters and, and uh, got talking to them, and they were all mainframe computer programs from South Africa and America and England and Germany and, and you know, all over the place, um, and they convinced me that IT and working with these big computer systems, these IBM mainframes was really the way to go and a and, uh, good thing for the future. So when I got back to Australia, eventually, this is quite a, quite a long talk, but um, I didn't go back to hydrographic. Uh, great career and I loved it, but it didn't pay very well being a being government job. Um, so I did a diploma uh, course, 18 months course in uh, mainframe computer programming and, uh, and then got into the mainframe industry. And uh, I will be quiet now <laughs> to, give, to so, give you some air. <laughs> what, what, I, what I want you to understand about this is that uh, I want you to talk as much as possible. <laughs> every once in a while, I'll go on a, a ramble here. Um, but what I want to do is learn. And uh, what, what people need to get from this is it, it's a very interesting thing when someone from a small town all of a sudden has that catalyst moment in their life that sends you into a travel agent. And by the time you walk out of there at lunch, you're going to London. Yeah. There's a catalyst Incredible. moment in your life. You know, it could be God. It could be whatever. It's something, something that day sent you off and you said, I got to go. Do, do you under, do you understand what that catalyst was? Was there something going on in your life where you said, I got to get out of here for a month and check out the world? No, I was I was in love with what I was doing, and 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 it was great. So I, it was just a just on a on a whim, um, but you know one of those things that I'm eternally grateful for. I mean, it, yeah. it set me off and and uh, you know let me see the world, let me discover the joy of travel, let me you know if whoever, whoever watches this, um, you know, get your kids to travel, get your kids to travel. You, you don't want to be in the same little place for your whole life because you're you're living in a bubble and you don't you don't see the world and and people out there are just like like you are you know it doesn't matter the countries doesn't matter where they're from or what they do or what language they speak or so on and so forth this was i i can still remember the the revelation thought one night in london um went to a party and was sitting there you know again from small town country australia we're sitting in this party and there was two or three girls over there from 
from Norway and some guys over here from Spain and a couple of people here from Germany and some people here from Morocco and another couple of people from, you know, just all of these different countries. And we're all getting along and talking as best we could with, uh, you know, whatever languages we, we spoke and, and uh, just having a good time. It was amazing. It was just uh, such an eye-opener, again, for, for a small-town kid. Um, you know, I'd, I'd grown up since then, but, uh, but just seeing all these people from everywhere and, and realising that we're all, we're, all just, we're all just people, you know, and, and the stories and the lives they've lived and the cultures they bring to the mix that you can learn about just from talking to them and, and hanging out with them and stuff like that. They've lived really different lives with their countries and their languages and their, just their shared histories. Um, it's uh, get, get your kids to travel and, uh, and let them experience the world. It'll be the, it'll, it'll make them better people. That's my humble opinion. I'm sure you know some of these people like I do, uh, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's the choices that we've all made. Um, but there's people within that little community where I grew up that have never traveled out of the 30 mile radius of that little town. And, uh, like you said, I, I, I've have, I have a three-year-old at home, as you know, and I'm taking Johnny everywhere. You know, it's like, we're going back to Illinois to visit. We're, I'm taking him to Hawaii for my 50th birthday. Him and Chris are going, we're going over there to Hawaii. You know, it's like you, I hadn't been on an airliner until I was 22 or 23 years old. And now I live in Reno, but the first place that I went from Mount Carroll was to Reno, Nevada to a bowling tournament, <laughs> you know, and a, a drinking story. My friend Donnie Bull and I drank that airplane out of alcohol on the way to Reno, Nevada, you know, hence the fact that I don't drink anymore because I, I was a crazy man. But same thing. I remember getting on that airplane and flying to Reno, Nevada, and I thought I was going across the world to the most amazing place in the world. And at the time it was because I was leaving that little town that I was in. Um, but now kind of like you, when you take, take the um, blinders off and look at the world for what it is, it's a small place. And we all have so much in common. And, and, and uh, please, you know, some of my dearest friends are, are, living in small towns and really making an impact. My mum and dad have been in this town for, for, you know, I was, I was born there. So 50 odd years, probably 60 years they've been in this town and they've made an impact. You know, they've been in all of the, the Lions club and, and they've been on the board of the local football team and, and they've, uh, um, you know, um, been on the, uh, um, uh, worked at the high school and, and you know what I mean? They've made an impact in so many lives and on the community and so on and so forth. So, so that's fine. All I'm saying is you have to travel. You have to travel, live in your small town, make your impact. You know, I'm, I'm going to eventually die and, and won't have made much impact because I've been so many places, you know, no, no impact on one particular place. But uh, um, so it's, it's a wonderful thing to, to make an impact on a community and, and do good that way. But you have to travel. You have to see outside and, and experience outside and so forth. That's, again, my humble recommendation. Yeah, it, me too. And it, it's more about opening the mind. Absolutely. Yeah. Spot on. Spot on. You know, on. because it, it, I, I got a fun story about uh, there was a summer. There is still a summer stock theater outside of Mount Carroll, Illinois, called Timberlake Playhouse. And I was in a musical out there called 1776 when I was 18 years old. I was just out of high school. And that's the first time that I had seen two men kiss. And this is like 1990. And my brain just went, woo. I was like, what? What? You know, coming out of this small town. And uh, it, it, was my, it was my first recollection that uh, that's okay. All the things that I have talked about okay. gay it's, people. It's as normal as anything know, else. It's all exactly. BS. And, uh, you know, I'm yeah. so happy for that experience. And I got to have it that early in my life because it just took all of the phobia away from that well said and uh you know just you get out there open your mind see different things and uh you know be open to letting other people be who they are 
yeah, there's there's uh, you know there's there's good people and bad people and and every level in between. You know, whatever whatever your sexual orientation, whatever your color, whatever language you speak, wherever you live, you know, judge like Martin Luther King said. You know, judge judge people on their character for goodness sake, not on uh, not on some of these other things. And anyway, we we probably don't want to get off into into those tangents. But no uh, thanks, no thanks, <laughs> no politics, no religion. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. You know, um, so. But, but well said. on the three-year walkabout that you went on, <clears throat> what what are a few of the biggest lessons that you learned about yourself or about the world when you were out there for three years? I mean, you already talked about the mainframe thing that kind of got you on that road, but uh, what, what are some of the other things you really learned on that uh, three years? Yeah, I mean, eventually when I got back, I, I was doing the mainframe thing. I, I don't know. I mean, traveling by yourself and and just just uh, traveling around with no set plans and things like that. It's, I suppose when you're traveling with a group, like the, the three Kiwis and I in the combi van, um, I've always found if you can travel with somebody, you, you're, you'll get along just fine. You know what I mean? That's a, that's a real acid test for, uh, for whether you can get along with somebody. You can get along with most anybody on a superficial level, but traveling with somebody <laughs> when all sorts of things are going on and you've yeah, got to When you're smelling that person. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Um, that's, uh, that's a good judge. And, the, and these three guys are mates to this day. Um, <clears throat> and I suppose it teaches you that self-reliance and, and gives you a belief that you can... You know, I just figure out a way. I, I quite like that uh, that movie, The The Martian, um, uh, where what's his name from? Uh, Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill uh, Hunting guy. <laughs> Sorry, the guy. I should remember his name. Yeah. But uh, but uh, a couple of times in that movie, they've they've shown you know in in adversity when the poop hits the fan, um, you can figure it out. You know what I mean? Just Think about it, Matt Damon. Matt Damon, um, just just figure it out. He he said something about it. we're going to science the shit out of this thing, but but uh, it, you know, and I I lean that way with with science as well. But but you know, have self reliance. Don't panic. Don't find things overwhelming. They can be horrible, but you know what? You'll you'll figure it out and uh, and get things done and and come up with a survivable outcome or a good outcome. <laughs> but. But uh, you can you can beat it. Um, so it gives me that self reliance. You've traveled all over the world. You've heard and seen all kinds of different musical acts. What's your go to playlist today? <laughs> um, well, I've I've heard you on stage, so I, I don't know how you uh, you can come back after that. But yeah, how do you top that? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> So anybody who doesn't know this, I, I'm a I'm a lead singer and a drummer in a an '80s tribute band called The Breakfast Club. And the guy who's recording this right now, Ed, is the keyboard player. So yes, The Breakfast Club is amazing. But who who who's on your playlist as far as the the rest of the musical acts that you love? Uh, my um, my taste. I'm not sure. I mean, growing up in the '80s in Australia was uh, was. Aussie bands, seventies and eighties. So, so you know, in excess, and and um, um, I loved Split Ends from New Zealand, and and uh, Hunters and Collectors. I listened to Hunters and Collectors. There's an Aussie band from the eighties, and and I liked them then, but I love them now. They're so far ahead of their time. If anyone wants to listen to Hunters and Collectors, um, so so a bunch of Aussie bands. Um, when I travelled, uh, my taste in music got way way broader. Um, um, I got to London right at the start of the acid house music sort of scene and, and uh, loved all of that sort of stuff. I had some good friends I traveled with from South Africa. And so there's a type of music called Mbakanga um, and various other South African music, which is uh, just phenomenal. Um, the Graceland album uh, by Paul Simon, he collaborated with, uh, with artists, Ladysmith, Black Mambazo and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Malatini and the Martella Queens and some other bands uh, from South Africa. So you'll get a feel for that sort of music there uh, or look for those two, um, uh, all sorts of things. I've come over to the States right at the start of grunge and just loved, loved, loved Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and, and uh, all of that sort of movement. Um, and, you know, I've got uh, kids from 25 through 18 through, through 16. So I've, 
you know, listen to their music as they've grown and, and got to like that sort of stuff. So, so I'm sorry if I'm sounding like a politician dodging the question, but uh, it's, it's, it's <laughs> well, broad I, and very. I you didn't and, say uh, midnight oil. I love midnight, <laughs> I love midnight oil. oil. Yes. Yeah. Um, in excess, I, I do in excess to that. In excess, Michael Hutchins is one of the best singers of all yeah, time. One of story. the best front men. Um, but uh, yeah, I appreciate you going to that because I, Love talking about music and finding out what everybody's into today and what the uh, kind of is on the playlist. So, as you know, I'm a parent now, and uh, my kid teaches me things every day. Um, what did becoming a dad do to you and teach you? Greatest thing I've ever done. <laughs> but bar none, be, being a parent's the greatest thing I've ever done. Um, and that's... Uh, I've, I've made a um, conscious choice. Well, th this company that, that I was one of the original team in Australia, Interskill, that I work for now, um, has, um, has given me the chance to work from home for 15, 20 years. Uh, and that's been one of the you know, greatest blessings of my life because working from home um, has meant that, you know, I'll get up early in the morning with the kids and have breakfast with them and get them to school or walk them down to the bus stop or whatever. So I see them. Um, and the second they come home from school at three or four in the afternoon, I can, you know, especially when they're little, I could go up from my office and sit with them for 15 minutes, just take a break, 15 minute break, sit with the kids, have a chat, you know, see what their day was like, spend some time with them. I'd be home here and not commuting uh, to, cook dinner in the evenings and spend the evenings with them. You know what I mean? Um, if you're working in an office and you've got a half hour, hour, hour and a half commute, you don't see your kids anywhere near as much as you should. So I've, I've made it a conscious effort to spend, you know, they're my favorite people in the world, my three kids. I'd rather hang out with them than, than anybody uh, and, my, and my lovely wife, obviously. But, but uh, and so that probably makes me a bit of a recluse, but I'd, I'd rather spend time with them and, and hang out and just do anything um, than, uh, than do anything else at all. So I've made a conscious effort to spend as much time with them as I can, and it goes fast. I mean, you're at the, you're at the beginning, but you'll blink and they're going to college <laughs> and, and all of a sudden you're, uh, you're not seeing them as often as you used to. Those, those years go by in a hurry. So don't don't miss a minute with your uh, with your kids. They they grow into such remarkable people, uh, and blow your mind every other day. Well, I can't believe that he's three now. And he's he's going to be four in August. It goes quick, man. You know, so all of a sudden here comes kindergarten, and uh, it seems like just yesterday I was getting buried in the sand by your kids. You know, so it's like uh, just when I was getting ready and preparing for talking with you today to look at the ages of Kennedy, Raleigh, and Cammie just blew my mind because it's like, where'd that time go? Oh, it does. It <laughs> you know, brief. right out the window. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah, I'm so so proud of them. Whatever they do, and and they've just grown up to be wonderful people. And uh their insight is what always amazes me. You know, in in work, I'm used to sort of knowing the answers to things or figuring things out and so on and so forth. And and you think about things a certain way to get it done based on your years of experience and so forth. But every once in a while you'll be talking to your kids. And they'll say something and you'll think, oh, never even thought of it that way. You know what I mean? Just that, uh, that, that insight they have into the world just opens your eyes. Anyway, I'm, I'm gushing, but uh, well, I just say, I'm a lucky I love, man. I love to see Johnny at three years old using an iPad better than I ever could. <laughs> that's true, you know? isn't it? And that's been from yeah. like a year and a half old. It's, it's amazing to watch the young minds that don't know anything different except for this technology where... I remember when these different technologies came out and it just blew my mind. I'm like, you can do what, you know? And now, now this phone that I hold in my hand has more power on it and more memory in it than, you know, a computer that I used two or three years ago. Than the, than the know, early, than the early mainframe computers that ran corporations, you know, right. 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. That so, filled up a whole room. Yeah, exactly. These, these uh, little handheld phones that we've got are just remarkable remarkable pieces of equipment well speaking of mainframe let's let's talk a little bit about interskill <laughs> segue <laughs> so uh interskill learning uh you are the coo 
Tell us about Interskill. We, we started um, this college that I was telling you about uh, in Australia where I learned to program uh, on mainframes. Um, this is in uh, 1990. So um, the head of the college, they trained mainframe operators and programmers and the head of the college after I'd graduated said, do you, are you going to go and work for you know, a bank or an insurance company or healthcare or government that run the mainframes? You're going to go those sort of jobs. If you are interested, um, we are just about to start putting some of our courses onto this amazing new thing called computer-based training. You've never heard of it before. Nobody had. Uh, and, uh, and I said, you know what, that sounds really interesting. Another one of these pivotal moments. And I said, instead of going and working as a COBOL programmer and, and cutting code for years, uh, I thought this sounded really interesting. I could, uh, I could get into uh, the education side of things. So um, we started putting courses together uh, as simple as they were back then on floppy disks. I used to have a briefcase, a leather briefcase in the 90s. You know, every, every young executive has a, and salesman has a... Um, a briefcase full of floppy uh, floppy disks, and uh, and you'd go to these big corporations, and you'd end up installing this clunky computer-based training, just pages of text and pictures, um, onto a standalone early PC in the training room, and and that was it. Um, and this was good, you know, we we had some good courseware, and we were doing well. Uh, but with the internet coming along, you know, computer-based training really became e-learning and the world realized, the academic world realized that the scalability is incredible. Like you can have courseware and with the internet, you can have any number of people accessing it from anywhere and you can really start to uh, to um, scale this up. Uh, and we started scaling and a company in the UK um, decided they were really interested. Um, so I went over to the UK in 93 to help set up their offices over there and get them started. And then they wanted to open up in the US. So I came over here in 95, April 95, I landed in LA and uh, looked, at, looked around at LAX and went, holy cow, and got on the California freeways to go down to Orange County to uh, where our offices were. And, and it's like nine or 10 lanes wide of, of Southern California traffic. And I'm thinking, here I am again. It was like arriving in London for the first time, you know. And uh, so, but we, we set up here in the US, which is the, the vast majority of the mainframe systems in the world. And, uh, and I've been here ever since. So Interskill is from those humble beginnings. Um, we are now the most delivered mainframe training in the world. Um, there's probably about two and a half thousand big corporations that run mainframes in the world. So it's not that many companies. Um, these are the banks, insurance companies, healthcare, uh, government, um, and, and, you know, big airlines and, and uh, retail and so forth, but, but mainly the big number crunches. So government, banking, healthcare, insurance. Uh, and they have, you know, a certain number of people between 100 and three or 400 um, at each of these organizations that actually run the mainframe. So again, it's a small number of highly, highly skilled people. Um, we delivered over 900,000 hours of mainframe training last year in wow. 2021. So that's you know, exponentially more. Um, obviously being e-learning and the pandemic hitting uh, made classroom training very difficult. So it's uh, um, got a lot of people using this uh, e-learning um, more. But I think, you know, E-learning is what saved K through 12 in the pandemic. Oh, was I, know, I know with my kids going to high school, those teachers just hats off to them. You know, they, they pivoted on a dime. They had planned out their whole year. This The pandemic hit at the start of the year, didn't it? Um, and they'd planned out the whole year of classroom and all of a sudden <laughs> none of the kids could come to school and they all had to sit at home. You know, thank goodness for the internet, but these teachers were delivering classes via Zoom and using Google Classroom and just putting stuff in. So, so for K through 12 teachers out there, you know, hats off to you. What, what, a, what a remarkable thing you did to hardly miss a beat and keep teaching your kids um, through a pandemic. I mean, this is, this is incredible. So, so e-learning has really become very accepted for everybody now. It's just a normal way of learning things. I had uh, Harry Mosley, the CIO from uh, Zoom, 
yep. on the podcast. And that's and, done well. Uh, it was so interesting <clears throat> where, where they were positioned when the pandemic came out. It was for um, large companies to use Zoom. All of a sudden, I'm like, my mom's church back in Mount Carroll is using Zoom. Every company, they, they gave it away to churches, schools, everybody who needed to use it and went from, you know, a million users to hundreds and millions of users using Zoom every day. And thank God for it, because there's nothing worse, as far as I'm concerned, nothing worse for a human being than being isolated and not being able to communicate with other human beings. And at the beginning of that pandemic, we were all going, oh my God, I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> do. Do I close myself in the house and lock it because it's going to kill me? You know, cause we didn't know. We didn't know what it was. Yeah. We didn't know whether it was in the air or it was on, I can remember wiping down our food from the everything supermarket. I mean, we didn't know if it was going to burrow up out of the ground and bite us, you know, right. what the heck this thing was. Um, so yeah, it was a, a completely new reality. Yeah, and, and the- you know what, again, kudos to, Kudos to the world. I mean, it wasn't anarchy. They went, you know, it was it was horrible. But but people sort of pulled together and helped out. And and at the start, it was it was amazing how people came together and, yeah, and wanted to, to do the right thing. It, it really points to the resourcefulness of human beings, where it's just like, no, no, we'll, we'll get through this. Don't worry about it. You know, where where you watch you you, you watch the the powers that be or the media you know, blow up everything into, Oh my God, we're all going to die. You know, but when it, when it comes to the reality of things, we're all going to be just fine one way or another, we're going to be just fine, (laughs) you know? And uh, you know, it, it, it was trying times, no doubt, but now looking back on it, it's like, it wasn't really that bad. Apart from toilet paper, I could never quite figure out why people had to stockpile toilet paper. Hey, sometimes, what if I take a shit for like days? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I don't know what so, this is going to do to me, so I got to get a lot of toilet paper. And 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 back, I know we were talking about industry, but back to uh, to kids. Take take a minute. I, I had a sort of a bit of a, a quiet thought sometime after. I'm so proud of my children the way they dealt with it. Because, you know, we were running around as parents thinking, oh, my God, how are we going to get this organized and what's going to happen and so on and so forth. I didn't see my kids freak out at all. You know, they just uh, they just did the right thing and listened and, and found out what they could and, and worked with us and helped out. And you know what I mean? So so on that level, you know, think about your kids and, and you sort of don't realize how scary it must have been for them. Because yeah. this is this is not like anything that you know you and I have seen in our lifetime. I mean, it's uh, Spanish flu after World War One was uh, was the last time that happened, and that was awful. Um, but the kids have done uh, incredibly well, and and seem to have just charged on. You know what I mean? They're not. Uh, and sorry, I don't mean to sell anybody short out there if you're suffering from from stress because of it. But uh, but in in my circle anyway, um, the kids have just taken it as a new reality and found a way to flourish and continued yeah. on. So uh, it's again, testament to, uh, to just how resilient we are as, as a species. Johnny didn't know any different. He just thought maybe daddy was a doctor for a while wearing that mask. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so I was realizing while I was going through researching Interskill, you know, when I started off as a technical recruiter um, 25 plus years ago, I, I had a, a mentor that said, put yourself into some kind of niche. He goes, mainframe's huge right now. It's right before Y2K. So I grabbed a hold of RPG AS400 programmers. And that's all I placed when I was in Minneapolis. It was, you know, US Bank, Regis Haircare, Nordic Track, all these different companies. And I just started placing RPG AS, AS400 programmers like crazy, you know, and before Y2K, people were just throwing money like, Yes, give us people. We'll pay you, buddy. Um, this mainframe is still all over the place. I mean, like you said, all the banks, all the number uh, insurance companies, all the, the mainframe's not going away anytime soon. I mean, I think it's companies- 80, 86% of financial transactions in the world still run through mainframes. 
Wow. So it's the center of everything. I think it's about the same, about 85 to 90% of the world's business data is still stored on mainframes. So this is this is the center of everything you do. Do anything with money, with credit cards. Um, it, it all runs through the mainframe. The the IRS and all the government departments still use the mainframes and store. It's the only thing. And, and the other um, reason that the mainframes really come into its own lately is is um, data security. You know, you you read about these companies that have had a breach or been hacked or have lost data. And, uh, and it's just disastrous for these companies. But the mainframe has um, uh, pervasive encryption at the moment, and they're just about to implement a thing called fully homomorphic encryption. Uh, pervasive encryption encrypts the data at rest, so on your hard drive or on the hard drives in storage, um, which people are sort of quite at home. They, they understand that data can be encrypted at rest, but pervasive encryption also encrypts the data in transit. So when it's going from the hard drive to the program and when it's being sent and so forth uh, in flight, fully homomorphic encryption, which is just stunning, uh, is uh, keeps the data encrypted even while the programs are working with the data. So that means that it doesn't matter if you get hacked. It means it doesn't matter if data gets taken. It's fully encrypted and can't, wow. they can't do anything with it. Um, so, so that plus the speed plus the the uh, the uptime mainframes uptime is measured in decades. I mean, they have they have just no downtime. They're so reliable, uh, and and response time and so forth. Um, so, um, they really are the core of of the business world. Um, not not so much you know laptops and Chromebooks and and phones and so on and so forth. Obviously, but the business world still relies on the mainframe, and there's really nothing to touch it. There's there's uh, um, no other system. You know, Amazon Web Services is a, a behemoth, and and it's used around the world. But um, horses for courses. If you run a big corporation and there's masses of data, especially in the financial industry and or healthcare insurance, so on and so forth. The mainframe is really your, you know, obvious choice. It's it's uh, so well suited and offers so many things that nothing else does. So so that's um, because that's remained so strong. It's put us in a in a terrific place um, where we've ended up, you know, providing mainframe training. The other thing that's really uh, made us important to the industry is remember the system three hundred and sixty IBM system three hundred and sixty, which was a was a revelation back in sixty three. I think it came out um, through the 60s. These big corporations were hiring like you did. They were hiring programmers and and systems people as computing really expanded. Um, But do the math on these. These were baby boomers. Um, They're all retiring or just retired or getting close to retiring now. And the next generation of mainframers needs to come through um, to fill those gaps, fill those spots. And universities really don't train mainframe as much anymore. You know, kids go to university and they want to learn how to code games or do apps or, or, uh, stuff like that. Um, but, um, but uh, not too many universities do mainframe, though, though IBM's worked really hard through their academic initiative and, and have a number of universities that train. But a lot of companies are just upskilling people at work. They're uh, getting people from other IT roles and training them into mainframe or hiring people with an IT degree and then giving them those uh, specific mainframe skills. And that's where we come in. And uh, um, so we've, we've, like you said before, just found that niche uh, and uh, and the the industries remain so incredibly strong that it's uh, put us in a great place. So again, by by good luck or good management or some of both, um, we've done really really well. So what's uh, what's what's next for InterSkill? What anything new coming down the pike that you want to bring up? Well, after after thirty odd years of us being a, a small company, a reasonably small company, uh, we were acquired by um, Alpine Investors um, out of Silicon Valley. Uh, last March, um, and they're putting together um, a training organization, digital training organization. So um, we'll be expanding with uh, the types of topics that we offer training on um, and um, getting bigger. They've got deep pockets. They really want to invest in this. They see the future of uh, mainframe training and the future of the mainframe industry and so forth. So, so we're sort of 
in uh, in hyperdrive at the moment. <laughs> there's too there's too much going on, way too much going on. We've um, we've got one really big thing coming up um, next Monday by chance. So uh, so only only a few days away. So we're we're frantically working day and night at the moment on it. Um, in your business, you know how important certifications are. You know, Microsoft certifications, AWS, Cisco, you name it, on and on and on. Microsoft, obviously. Um, so people need to get those certifications to even be considered for a job. That would be one of the first things you would have on your list of, uh, of candidates for, for a job in, in your business. Um, so certifications are really, really important. And there haven't been certifications in the mainframe space. In 30 or 40 years, there haven't been. But, uh, but InterSkill has been spending the last year working with IBM uh, and we're releasing the first industry first uh, mainframe. Um, so IBM professional certificates, they're called, um, next, uh, next Monday to bring certification into the mainframe space. So this will be huge. This will be really huge. Are and, there going to uh, be certain certifications for different types of mainframe by job role, technologies? Yeah. Yep, by, by the job role, because the, the operating system, the Z operating system is, is the core of the mainframe um, and the systems personnel is computer operators and system programmers that run the system side of things. And that's where we're starting. We've got three um, IBM professional certificates. This is digital credentialing too, by the way, and, and this has become a real passion of mine. Uh, IBM about five, six years ago started with Credly, which has uh, just been acquired by Pearson. Uh, and Credly does uh, digital credentialing, and they're just remarkable. And and uh, read up on digital credentialing; it's it's very much the the way of the future. The uh, the credentials you earn have all the metadata behind them, so that anyone can click on, you know, the course you've passed and see when you earned it, where you earned it, every bit of information that you learned, what was in the syllabus, the curriculum rather of that course. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not just a, a thing on a wall anymore saying I did a COBOL course. Um, you can click in and dig down and see what they learned and what they didn't learn and how out of date it was, you know, you know how long ago it was and so on and so on and so forth. Plus it's not, uh, it's not forgeable. I mean, you know, a piece of paper on the wall can be, uh, someone can come up with those things for- um, I've got four of them on my wall. There we go. <laughs> Yours are probably authentic, but, uh, but you know what I mean? Having digital credentials means, and you'll see it on LinkedIn, um, and LinkedIn's something I'm very, very impressed with as well. Um, you'll see on LinkedIn people putting up their digital credentials for courses they've done, for um, conferences they've spoken at, for patents they've earned, for projects, for everything. There's all sorts of awards and credentials, but uh, but this stuff is is yours digitally and uh, and has an enormous enormous amount of depth and information behind it to uh, to show exactly what it entails. So um, this is uh, what we're doing with IBM. These IBM professional certificates are digital credentials. Um, and a guy called Jim Daniels from the uh, IBM um, badge program has been a real mentor of mine over the past five or six years. He's taught me so much. So, so obviously I'm in the e-learning business, but digital credentialing is just a fascination. It's, it's really going to change all education, K through 12 and, and uh, university and, and corporate education and so forth. You might be one of the best segue people in the business. So professionally. <laughs> We're very well choreographed, you and I. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like a dance. So professionally, who have been your mentors over the years uh, in business? Um, that's, yeah, the, the, the gentleman that, uh, that started uh, what was Data Task in Australia, uh, Ray Menzies, he was the, the head of that college and uh, he... Um, stepped into e-learning when it was a brand new thing and saw the picture and, uh, and made something remarkable of it. And, and he taught me so much. Um, so, uh, you know, from the, from the start um, and funnily enough, now at the moment, the, the CEO that Alpine put in charge of our company um, when we were acquired last year, is a young 30 something hotshot called Jono Zidane. Um, and he's holy cow! He's probably one of the smartest people I've ever met, and just just personable and authentic and and ridiculously smart. So uh, you know, a 50, 56 year old uh, 
person, me, is learning from a, a young 30-something guy and I'm learning enormous amounts from him. You know, so uh, so there's those on that level just, you know, and and uh, um, Jim Daniels, obviously, from the from the badge program. Um, but, you know, I, I was mentioning LinkedIn before. Um, that's been amazing in, in giving me the ability to communicate easily and read up on and follow the writings of and and uh, so forth of, of a vast array of people that are sort of um, sort of mentors. You know what I mean? You can pick somebody that you really admire because of what they do and watch what they do. And if you follow them and connect with them, you can, you know, if I come up against something that's really tough, I can reach out to some of these people because it's in their field of interest. Um, you know, if I connected with you and if I... Uh, um, had a, a question on, on staffing, I would reach out to you and you would, as somebody I knew was authentic, would give me your thoughts on it, you know, and that would help me make, make my decisions. So it's, it's not a, not a hands-on mentor that's following my career and so forth, but it's a, it's a whole resource of smart people that I know think like me and I admire for what they do um, that I can reach out to and uh, and find answers or get advice or get their thoughts or so forth that's direct communication and other than that just read every day you know articles they've written and comments they've made to the media and things like that again just to to keep up with all that sort of stuff um so i'm on a bit of a rant but uh but there's a there's a whole array of of people that i follow and communicate with some of the heads of ibm um which the ibm champion award um has enabled me to do um and, and I admire the heck out of IBM as an organization. Um, read up on how many patents IBM gets every year compared to any other company in the world. It's, it's exponentially more. They're real leaders and, and leaders in quantum computing as well. Ten years from now, if, if you and I are talking about this thing, you wait, wait and see what IBM does with quantum in the next decade. It's going to be just world-changing. Um, so, so some of those leaders, um, this uh, Zelensky in the Ukraine, Vladimir oh, yeah. Zelensky, like what a man, yeah. <laughs> what a what a guy. He could have tucked tail and run, and uh, and Russia probably would have rolled over the Ukraine in in days without a figurehead to to keep him resisting, you know. And and he just said, "Stuff it. This is more important than my life. I'm I'm going to do the right thing." If we could thing. find what a man. If we could find a leader like that <laughs> in the United States. You know, I, in, mean, I, in, I, I want to in follow 90% of the company, uh, countries in the world. They, they oh, I'm just saying, I want to like follow that. someone who what I can believe in. Like you said before, yeah. you said earlier in this podcast, you can tell authenticity from the get go. Yep. When you're talking to someone, you know, I've, I've got a very good bullshit meter, as do you. And it's like, I don't read any with him. It's just like, this is my country. I'm going to defend it till the end. End of story. I mean, that's it. And it's like it's, the, it's it's more important than his life. He he just said straight away. He said, you know what? This is this is more important. I don't I don't care if I die. This is this is what I have to do with yeah. with my life, and it's worth the price. And I was I was watching one of his speeches in tears. You know, it's just like to it was it was when the um, uh, translator was you know just trying to translate what his leader was saying and he was breaking down and I'm just sitting there. It was only like a week into it or the first week of that siege. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really hard to listen to and watch and uh, to have those kind of feelings come from a leader of a country like that. I was, I was blown away just as you were. And, and also uh, Jacinda Ardern is the prime minister of, uh, of New Zealand. And uh, if anyone is listening um, follow Jacinda Arden or, or read some of her stuff. She's just the most wonderful folks. And it's very much New Zealand. If you know any Kiwis or if you've ever been to New Zealand, they're just. Well, I think, I think people. I know New Zealand and Australia now because Johnny's favorite show is a show called Bluey. Okay. And for a kid's show, it is the cutest, best <laughs> thing in the world. I mean, the, the Australian humor comes through as the parents. I mean, it's, it's this dog family. And it's, it's, it's the most fun thing ever. And it's just like, we're watching Bluey every night. <laughs> See, 
your, your children, your children are educating you. <laughs> well, I, I do love it. And, uh, you know, that, that, like you said, that, that kid, um, has taught me so much about myself and, you know, he's, he's taught me patience. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. So I end the true ambition podcast the same way with every person. So the name of my book is true ambition. Um, the podcast is called true ambition. So when I was going through a 12 step, there it is right there. Look at that guy, <laughs> right. in, the, look at that guy I, in the cover. I, I did rate it. It's fantastic. So the, the true ambition quote comes from a book called the 12 and 12. It's in my program that I took in uh, AA, my 12 step program. <laughs> And in there, Bill Wilson says that true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. So every person I talk to on this podcast is ambitious like I am. My ambitions in my earlier life were for women, stuff, cars, things, you know, all that kind of stuff. When I read that quote, and dug into it, it really kind of changed my perspective. And I started to live my life a different way. I started to do things for the right reason. Like that quote says, to help other people and to do things for the right reasons. What I want to find out from you in the closing of the podcast is you've been a lot of places, you've done a lot of things moving forward in your personal life and in your professional life. What is your true ambition moving forward? Great question. I, I think, and I've always, I've always tried to do this. I think you can do a lot of good as part of your career. Um, not necessarily. I know that you're you're a, a philanthropist and and you've set up charities and all of that sort of stuff. And you know, hats off to you. I, I commend you for that. Um, I, I made sure that Interskill um, just through what education can do for people's lives. We donate enormous amounts of our training to uh, universities all around the world, to students that want to get a career in the mainframe industry, which is a phenomenal career. Um, uh, so we, we're always working with organisations. Don't, don't take a penny for it. We're always working with educational organisations around the world and with IBM uh, because they do a lot of it as well, um, just to, to lift people up. Um, there's uh, just out of interest, I'm not sure if you're aware of Kiva, K-I-V-A, is a micro lending website. So again, I'm, I'm not shilling for them, but, but I've been part of that for a decade. Um, and you just, uh, you, for 25 bucks, you can be a small part of a micro loan to uh, people in various countries that don't have any access to lending. Hmm. And uh, they can, you know, improve their, put fertilizer on their farm or uh, get education or buy an extra piece of equipment to make their livelihood and look after their families and so forth. And then as they repay the loan, the money comes back into your pot and then you just loan it to somebody else. And that's called uh, Kiva, K-I-V-A. Yeah, based in California. Uh, micro lending, again, read up on micro lending. It's fascinating way of providing lending to people around the world vast majority of people in the world have no access to lending and they have no no collaterals to back up wanting to get a loan anyway right you know so they continue to live in poverty or or not reach full potential um so that's something really cool just for you know in the western world for a few bucks every christmas i put another hundred bucks into kiva and uh, and start lining it out just as a christmas present to the world you know it's better better than me having stuff when i've already got too much anyway that's awesome. um, but as but as far as work goes, yeah, we we make sure that uh, that we're always donating and and helping organisations, helping uh, um, charities and and things with uh, with education, just to really uh, give people a chance to to get a good career and lift up their lives and and all those around them. You know what it's like when somebody gets a good career, their kids do better, uh, and so on and so on and so forth. So it's it's uh, really lifting generations just by yeah. uh, by getting people started and sal sal khan is another the who started khan academy he's another person that i admire incredibly because there's you know he's made free education k-h-a-n sal khan um the khan academy has made education available to the world you have an internet ac internet access um you can have access to you know, some of the best training you could find, some of the best classes you could find in universities around the world, math, 
um, you know, everything and anything, it's all at your fingertips free. And he's made a, a life's work out of putting this available and, and making that sort of knowledge and education available to people around the world who would have no chance. We're, we're so spoiled in the Western world with all of this education that we get um, and uh, all the opportunities we have with our lives. Um, so many countries, there's just no chance of an education at all and they're going to be stuck doing what they're parents and grandparents have done anyway i i do ramble on but uh um i i see education as a you know not a quick fix like giving someone a, a bag of food um but uh but it's a way of lifting people lifting families lifting towns and villages lifting you know countries really well, it's, it's the old do. proverb right give a man a fish eat for a day teach a man to fish uh, he goes fishing all the time. Is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what it is. I, I can't remember. I'm not the best at education myself. Fishing in a lake forever, I barely yeah. made it out of high school, bro. I'm trying <laughs> over here. But anyway, I, I want to thank you so much for being here today, uh, Darren. Uh, we got to get together in person someday in the future. Very soon. You got to meet this kid of mine, and I got to see your grown adults. So Absolutely, mate. It's been too right. long. Well, give my best to everybody, and uh, everybody, thanks so much for tuning into the True Ambition podcast. Jay-Z, John Zink, out. We'll see you next time. The True Ambition podcast is brought to you by IT Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition. And I'll be your protector.